Welcome to Midrats with Sal from Commander Salamander and Eagle One from Eagle Speak at Sea or Shore, your home for a discussion of national security issues and all things maritime. And good day, everybody. Glad to have you on board. If you are with us live, as always, I'd like to make the altar call to invite you to scroll down to the bottom of the page. That's where you will find the chat room for the show. We'll be monitoring during the course of the show. And if you have any observations you'd like to share or questions you would like for us to direct to our guest, that is the perfect place to do it because we'll be monitoring it during the course of today's show. And today's show, it's going to be a great one because we're going to – we're coming up on one year. You've got to talk about it. But we're going to look at it not um, in a minor details but on a larger view of things. And, of course, we're talking about the upcoming one-year – start of the Russia-Ukrainian war that started in February of last year. We want to look at it on what path best enhances American security and prosperity um, along with our allies when it comes to our response and support of the Ukrainians during the Russia-Ukrainian war. And uh, America's interests have been promoted by supporting nations not unlike Ukraine for all of our existence. As a matter of fact, during our, our battle for independence, without external help from people who had a variety of motivations, we wouldn't have been able to make it before. But there are good peoples on a variety of sides of arguments trying to describe whether more support or less support would better enhance uh, America's interests, whether they're called realist, idealist, isolationist, or some other way of looking at it. Um, their arguments are put out there to try to direct policy on both political parties. And what we're going to do today is we're going to concentrate mostly on what we hear generally described as the realist point of view. We're going to look at how you can define realism because there are different schools of thought with regards to that. And we have a great guest today, and I've been looking forward for quite a while to have a reason to, to, to ask her to come join us today. And for the full hour, we're going to look on this and related issues based upon um, a recent article that we will that she wrote in National Review that you can find a link to in the show page, titled "Who Are the Real Realists on Ukraine?" The author is Rebecca Heinrichs, the senior fellow at Hudson Institute. Rebecca, welcome to Midrats. Thank you for having me. Big big fan well, of your shows. This is a great, this is a pretty big privilege for me, so I appreciate you inviting me on. Oh shucks. Uh, we, we appreciate the opportunity to talk with you because uh, if the listeners aren't familiar uh, with her, I would encourage everybody not just to read the National Review article, um, but but look at what um, Rebecca has, has, has written recently. Um, she's got a, a lot of very, very intellectually hefty ideas. And I guess kind of like I talked on the intro, kind of kick things off to a certain extent to set the table is we are coming up on the, the one-year anniversary of the, uh, the three-day war that everybody was going to tell us was going to take place last year. And uh, pretty much from the D.C. to Brussels to Moscow axis, nobody really thought um, that Ukraine would be able to stand as long as she did. And uh, as, as you live in that, that D.C. and that think tank environment, um, I just wanted to roll this way. Have, I kind of know the answer, but you never know. Um, has that injected any bit of humility from what you've seen in the foreign policy establishment uh, in how they perceive things can, can actually happen and develop? Or have people just kept marching forward irrespective of the fact that the, the balance of people were frankly wrong? Um, it's a good question, I think, for some people. Uh it definitely has has caused them to reexamine their their priors, what they thought about um, obviously just Ukraine, how the Ukrainians would would fight. Also, I think it has taken up some people to 
to realize, I think there's a lot of people kind of made analogies pretty quickly to Afghanistan, to, to Ukraine. And obviously those are just two very, very different, different countries, different peoples, different situations. And so I've, I've seen a little bit of, of some humility, but I think they're still going uh, full speed ahead. I, I will say just on a, um, my kind of amazement, I actually was pretty hesitant to speak too strongly um, as the war was unfolding in the beginning, you know, when I was doing some commentary and providing my, my insights on, on, on TV as it was happening kind of, you know, in real time, um, because I could see that how Ukraine was responding was so different than what the official views were. And I even had a briefing um, by an individual who was just, it was a, kind of an off-the-record briefing by, by an individual, though, who was very familiar with the, the training that the Ukrainian forces were, were in the middle of right before the invasion. And this, this, this man said, you know, the Ukrainians, they've got much greater cohesion than what we saw in 2014 when, when they were last invaded by Russia, much better discipline, you know, clean and iron uniforms, uh, clean equipment, things that you would see in in you know in a disciplined military um, that was very commendable, really wonderful. And he said they are going to fight courageously and they're going to die. Um, that was the briefing that I got just days before the invasion, and um, and so it was just it was uh, it was amazing then just tragically. Uh, uh, lost their lives in defense of their country, but but they have really uh, um, outperformed what what I think everybody, even those closest to them, really believe they would be able to do. Um, and so, yeah, I think that this is a moment of humility for those of us who try to to decipher what's going to happen. And I know that my views uh, have changed a little bit in terms of how the United States ought to continue support for Ukraine sort of on a, a more practical level as time has gone on. But it should be a moment to, to remind everybody that, um, and this kind of gets back to the point of my article, which is that there's only so much predicting that we can do um, in matters of war and peace uh, because these are real people making decisions in real time. And so a lot of things can go differently than what we expect. Well, yeah, let me let me uh, ask some of the underlying questions. You start off your article talking about the different flavors of, of re realism. Can you can you kind of expand on that? And, and in doing so, can you talk about the the internationalist? Uh, what's the other phrase? Ideal ideal. I'm not a big big uh, foreign policy guy, but idealism uh, viewpoint and what where that might play into this situation. Yeah. yeah. So my, I will say, too, that the essay is, as I wrote it, it was sort of one of those things where I was trying to keep it under a 1,000 words to make it as useful as possible, but then to try to make it as fair as possible, it continued to grow. And so it is a horribly um, incomplete essay, I would just say. But, but um, what I tried to do, my motivation was I, I, I consider myself a realist, um, but uh, a, a certain kind of realist. And so uh, as I was watching this war unfold, what I, I noticed a trend that those who believed in restraint above, above all, um, this is, and I'm going to try to also be as fair to the people um, who are making these arguments as I could without, you know, denigrating them unfairly or, or whatever. Um, but, but a lot of these folks, you know, who say, well, I'm a realist, therefore you shouldn't support Ukraine. I mean, that kind of has become a very, a more prominent um, rhetorical uh, phenomenon that we have seen either on social media or in essays or on TV. And, and, and really, I'm not, the folks who are, or who are doing that, you look at the folks from the Quincy Institute as the kind of famous think tank, or um, I specifically mentioned Senator Rand Paul, who comes from the libertarian wing, um, and now Senator J.D. Vance, who's a populist. You know, they're, 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 they claim to be, they are, actually, they are making realist arguments in defense of trying to pressure Ukraine for a peace treaty. J.D. Vance going as far as saying that Ukraine has, is, is, has nothing to do with us, that has no tie to American national security interests. And so um, I finally got to the point where I said, listen, realism, realism is not, does not mean restraint. Realism certainly doesn't mean um, American withdrawal or disengagement from the world. Realism does not mean that we treat all allies as a liability, although there is something in the realist tradition that would say you've got to be careful because even your allies are working for their own interests and they do not necessarily overlap with yours. 
but my but, but I wanted to argue to say, listen, you know, realism is a discipline within international relations. It's a it is a broad camp that um, has shared assumptions, and it stands in contrast to the idealists um, who reject a lot of the assumptions held by the realists. Um, and we can go through some of those big ones, but I, I kind of wanted to set those two big parameters and then, and then go into what realism was. But realism um, has all kinds of different camps within it also. I, I broadly think that the two big ones that are the most helpful to understand are, are those who believe that you can kind of look at the world and just see balances of power almost regardless, you know, or, or you know, not, not giving great weight to the nature of the regimes or the systems of government, but just looking at power, military power, economic power, and you can kind of predict who's going to do what and where. And then you have those who say, no, really much harder than that. Regimes are made out of people. They've got different strategic cultures. They've got different values, different principles, different risk tolerances. And so you've got to take into account all of that if you're going to make sense of that. And that's where I fall. Um, I fall into that, that, that camp. Um, I'd even go further and say I'm actually uh, a moral realist. So that would be like, you know, Walter Russell Mead that claims to be, you know, a moral realist. Or you think of the Christian realist tradition, the Augustinians who believe in the just war tradition informing the United States' view, you know, role in the world. Um, but it's still very realist. It's just that we're saying, like, you know, we're not, we're not allowed to just kind of <laughs> run around the world. Um, without limit doing as we please that there are limits even moral limits so it's principled realism um and that's where i fall uh but so that was kind of the the, the contours of the article and and just real quick um before you ask your next question i i did make note in the beginning though that what i found very interesting and concerning actually is a lot of these sort of restrained realists of the of the you know i would i would argue they are making isolationist arguments a lot you can see for, i mean they talk about the military industrial complex which just harkens back to this idea that war profiteering was what was um actually um pushing the united states into war between the, the world wars i mean this is really harkening back to an intellectual heritage that that, that is isolationist um and a, a lot of these folks are making the same arguments as the progressives. And so they, they, they are, they are um, idealists, the progressive uh, wing of the Democratic Party. And I would say there's probably about 65 of them. I mean, if you kind of look at their vote against the China Commission as kind of a, you know, an indicator and look at their reasons for that, they make more idealist um, arguments um, and tend to be more dovish and pacifist in their approach to things. And it's those two groups that are really converging to oppose U.S. support for Ukraine. I, I found it really interesting that you brought in um, and almost, you know, the, the, some of the religious heritage that goes on to this is, is somebody who was, you know, raised as a Presbyterian. I'm not unfamiliar with, with John Calvin and his view of the world. And a, a couple of quotes from your article that, that, that caught my, my mind um, was, quote, the realist knows that the world never progressed people and realists see people as capable of great good but also of great evil unquote so i guess part of the reason that, that this can be so contentious and you do almost break into um sectarian arguments which as you pointed out also earlier on the article it's not really partisan it is if you wanted to look at the horseshoe theory of politics and the fringes of both political parties they kind of meet up in, in this area of support of ukraine in some ways and is, is part of the, the 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 reason why this argument is so stuck is uh the realist versus the idealist view isn't so much a, a view of how nations interact but a different understanding about the nature of man and our history that gives great examples of how we actually react towards the prospects of gaining or losing power so um i could go on there if you look at if you dig into the anthropological so like the, the nature of human beings and what you can expect out of them the realist the realist kind of looks at looks at us looks over the course of you know the history of mankind and says there's a certain behaviors about human beings that just 
are always are. Um, they're they're motivated. You know, it's, it's why it's why I, always, I find it interesting. People say, well, that that country is not acting in their interest. Well, you know, countries act in their interests as they perceive them, but they're not their interests align with you know. I mean, it can be pride. I mean, just, it could be Vladimir Putin's you know pride. It could be it, you know it's sense of pride. It's, it's some things that we would look at and say that's that's irrational, but it's it's very human. Um, and and so you know you kind of look and you say, but and human beings have you know finite ability to understand everything. Our limited is our our knowledge is is limited, um, and we we act to use you know Christian language. We act sinfully. Uh, we don't always act in the in the best interests of of ourselves and those around us. And so you know when, when you see that, it's not going to be any different whenever these people are the ones that are forming governments. And so you know. Um, uh, uh, you know, from the, the 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 just war tradition, which, by the way, you know, a lot of people associate the just war tradition with with Catholics, and that's because the great patriarchs were Catholic, or Augustine and Aquinas. But you also have Calvin and Luther, and then you go on to more contemporaries: Paul Ramsey, um, Niebuhr, Gene uh, Alstein. These these are Protestant great minds and scholars who are also just war uh, scholars. And so it's very ecumenical. It's actually just um, kind of shows you to how applicable and salient the, the just war tradition really is because it kind of resonates across time um, and people and across uh, Catholicism and, and Protestantism. But the, but the belief, it really is, it falls into, you don't have to be come from the Christian tradition. You can be, you can just believe in natural law. You know, John Locke made these arguments um, from just appealing to, to reason and natural, natural law that, you know, you, you can only expect so much. And so it does give you, you have to have greater humility as you approach international relations. Um, you're, you're not totally pessimistic, you know, about what can be done, but you also understand that, that people are, are not always going to act in the way you, you think that they ought. Um, and then, and also there's a great um, duty and responsibility to government to seek to act and behave justly. And, um and, and so, but you have to do that within the, um, you know, what, what is what is realistic, what can be done, and what is, you know, the, what is the duty of, of a just government? And it's to fundamentally, it's to protect political innocence, to protect their, the citizens and their and their their country, um, and and it's to do it's to, uh, you know, to punish the the evildoer who is doing harm to their to their country and their and their core interests. And and so, what I've argued is that actually. I think what I've seen is um, the leaders in the Republican Party, you know, and it tends to be, you are right, it's not strictly just they're going to be Republicans and idealists or Democrats, it's not fair or true, um, that on the fringes they can kind of, they meet sort of, because um, I, I, would, I would argue that the, the folks who, who want U.S. to disengage from the world are going to end up with the same, you know, calamity as, as the idealists, which is just, you know, if you don't want your government to use force to some degree or threats of force to influence the world on terms most conducive to American interests, you're going to you're going to find out that you're going to have other countries that are happy to step in that void and to push us around and harm us to the extent that they can. Um, but I would argue, you know, think of like Mike Gallagher, who's a China hawk, um, or even Mike Rogers, the chairman now of the House Armed Services Committee. Um, or, or Senator Wicker, who's the ranking member on the Senate um, Armed Services Committee. These, these folks are all very defensive of Ukraine and have actually been critical of the Biden administration's um, unwillingness to do more for Ukraine to help Ukraine prevail. But all of their arguments are very realist. They're very they're within the realist um, camp. It's just that you're going to have some other realists who just make different assessments about what, what makes sense and what can actually be done. If one of the complaints about the that I've seen about the Biden administration's approach is they seem to be slow rolling, uh, and certainly parts of Europe are doing the same thing, slow rolling aid to Ukraine in hopes, I guess, of, that there will be a negotiated, somehow this will help drive a negotiated uh, peace between Ukraine and, and Russia. Yeah, I, you know, so my my view from the beginning of the war was, First of all, I would just say, you know, the administration has been, I think, taking, patting itself on the back, I think, 
un, unjustly here um, by applauding, first of all, integrated deterrence as succeeding um, by, you know, various tools like threatening uh, economic sanctions against Russia before they invaded and then of being able to telegraph what we knew Russia would do, um, you know, and then when Mike Gallagher was like questioning some some administration officials, you know, I remember they uh, want to paraphrase un, unfairly, but basically they said that they do believe that this was a, this was successful integrated deterrence to which Mike Gallagher said, but they invaded anyway. What did we deter? Um, so I think this began with uh, a underappreciation of the threat of Russia, of, of what Russia was willing to do. Um, and I think that you can see that in a variety of policy documents coming out of the White House that in, in this effort to sort of prioritize China as a pacing threat, that they really underappreciated the, the, how bad Russia is, what, what, what Putin was willing to do, and, um, and the effects of, of what a Russia invasion of Ukraine would have on the rest of the alliance and really just global disruption generally. Um, so there's a failure to deter. And then once the failure to deter happened, then there was just this like horrific risk aversion on the part of the White House to provide Ukraine with the arms and operational leeway that they needed to quickly arrest the situation and prevent Russia from, from getting any territorial gains. And um, I mean, it was like driving you crazy. I mean, because you could, you could see it. Like you could, you could just see how um, how afraid they were of the Russian accusation that the United States would legally, under international law, be considered a co-combatant and they would go to war with us. And, you know, and I'm like, okay, but here's the thing. <laughs> you know, we're not the ones at war. Ukraine is the one defending themselves. Ukraine was unjustly um, uh, invaded. And, and we, we are allowed to provide this country with the arms necessary. And it's up to them and there's a, a sovereign nation to defend themselves. Um, and so I really, I mean, as each week and month went by, to me, it was just uh, more clear that this risk aversion was, you know, I, and I hate that people kept saying we were self-deterred. That's not a thing. Russia was deterring the United States from providing greater aid and from, you know, Ukraine to, to provide, or, or of NATO um, allies provide Ukraine greater aid. And, and I'm not, I don't want to underappreciate the, the, the very real risks that some folks were pointing out, the risks of, you know, of escalation. Those things are all real. But, um, but my view is you don't ever actually get rid of risk. You can seize it and, and, and pay for it up front um, when you're the one in control and more control. And kind of seizing the the moment, and this is how a lot you know some strategists out at Stratcom talk and think about this too. Or you can, or you think you're being risk, um, you know, more risk averse or more careful. But what you're actually doing is you're actually pushing the risk to the right on the timeline, with greater ramifications if things go really badly, which is where I think we're headed um, in terms of Russia's potential use of a nuclear weapon, et cetera, in Ukraine. So you you really. You really, um, it's a little bit counterintuitive from a strategy for some, you know, for just normal folks who are kind of watching this, but you, you really kind of want to seize the moment up front and, and help Ukraine um, to have all the weaponry that they need to be able to, to push the Russians out or, or stop the, the damage that Russia was, was going to do. But we didn't, we didn't do that. It's been, and that's why you've seen this very slow, very slow pattern of the Biden administration not providing Zelensky what he asked for. And then you've got enormous pressure from allies and from Congress and really Republicans in Congress um, on the national security committees, pushing them to give them, whether it's HIMARS or real-time intelligence or now, you know, now it's F-16s and attack them, but whatever it is, there's, you're always pushing for more. And then, and then the Biden administration relents. And, and that's been kind of the pattern that we've watched unfold over the course of the last year. One of the quotes in your article um, it made me think back to something I've been trying to understand for a while, and I, I, I will listen to any argument one way or another, even you know, one year into the war, um, about what ultimately is in the American interest. And I'm just going to do a little bit of a long quote from your article, the National Review. Uh, quote, in the U.S., the most realistic, realist argument considers interest and morality. It aims to maximally protect American security, freedom, and prosperity in accordance with moral precepts supported by the American people. 
In the case of Ukraine's war, Russia is a top-tier strategic adversary of the United States and is increasingly collaborating with the People's Republic of China to weaken, threaten, and coerce America and our allies, unquote. And what that made me think about is, again, the question I, I really can't get a good answer from anybody on is what advantage is there whether you know sometimes you don't seek uh international entanglement international entanglement seeks you type of thing where does the u.s global strategic position become enhanced when russia reconquers uh, most if not all of what is present-day ukraine and the message that sends to the former Soviet republics and members of the Warsaw Pact that are now part of NATO and also the peace camp in uh, Western Europe. Uh, you can, it's not difficult to play that out over the next few years. I don't see where letting, having, let, letting Russia just roll over that way really enhances America's long-term strategic desires. Have you heard a decent argument on that end, or is it just something nobody will give you a response to? No, I, I mean, I obviously agree with that. I think that, to be fair from some, some of the smarter realists, um, you know, they would say – so I'll just put it this way. Another sort of frustration of mine is when people say, let Europe take care of Europe. Okay, so this is the let Europe take care of Europe. Um, Obviously, the problem with that is Europe is not a country. <laughs> Europe is many countries, and um, and this idea in the United States. If you don't want to, you know, people allies, you know, are sensitive. Again, it's always like you know, the United States is the leader of NATO. Okay, that irritates some people. So, but you can say, I think indisputably, um, the United States is a co- is the coalescing force. Um, we are the ones who's. Uh, Extended nuclear deterrence is really the backbone of Article 5 of NATO. I just tell people, you know, people say, you know, the strength of NATO and collective security. I mean, I, I think a lot of this is is sort of euphemistic for really it's, it's the guarantee of American nuclear weapons. And that is that is truly um, the strength of the, the NATO alliance. And um, and so when you say let Europe take care of Europe, you kind of think like, okay, well, that, what that, let's, let's kind of run this through our minds and see what we what that would look like if the united states kind of disengages or takes kind of sits back a little bit and takes less of a leadership role of nato um let's say because you believe that we're distracted from the real problem which is china kind of turn your eyes that way i mean what what that means is that the country that who's the least willing uh to take on russia um with the most uh clout in, in, in on the continent of course is germany and, and so you really, you're saying that you're going to let Germany decide the fate of Europe. Well, you're condemning, as you said, you're condemning the Balts, the Poles, um, Romania, Czech Republic. I mean, we knew, I don't, all these smaller nations um, would, well, I mean, at, at the very least, you could say realistically, most plausibly, NATO would definitely, all these fractures that are in the alliance, um, because different, each of the countries within NATO have, uh, different degrees of assessing the threat from Russia, obviously. Um, uh, the smaller nations are going to have a much harder time um, defending themselves. And and so they're, they're going to have different risk assessments of the Russian aggression than, than, than one another. And, and so you're really kind of condemning the whole, the whole continent to, to the views of one particular country who I believe um, their, their assumptions about Russia um, have been so terrible for the interests of our stalwart allies who do, you know, commit the 2% GDP for, for collective defense and et cetera. Um, and, and really it was a lot of their appeasing of Russia that, that has, that contributed uh, to, to Russia's or to Putin's decision to invade Ukraine. And so that, that would not be that it would not be to, on our interest for that to happen for, for the United States to disengage for what I believe, you know, Russia would probably go for the non-NATO members, Moldova, um, pick those countries off. Um, but then, but then would just just hack away at those, you know. I mean, Lithuania. Lithuania is already. You could, I mean, I believe their sovereignty is being eaten away because of Germany's 
um, insistence that Lithuania not have the ability to enforce its own sovereign decision to not let the Russians traverse their sovereign country uh, for this war effort. You know, this, the Lithuanians believe they were enforcing EU sanctions by preventing Russia from transporting certain components um, for the war effort. And, and, and Germany came along and said, oh, please don't do that, because now the Russians would get really mad and, and, and might strike Lithuania. And so, you know, my, my, my point there is, you know, you, the, you, the United States is a coalescing force and does have a, has a steady hand over, over the alliance, and you withdraw that, and you definitely would – it's just not honest, I think, for some people to say let Europe handle Europe because I think they can see what's going to happen if the United States disengages. And you might say, well, hey, that's the way the cookie crumbles, you know, realism, to which I say that is you're going to um, talk about the lack of U.S. interest or how that harms us. You're going to condemn the polls then? I mean, these are the, the Brits are leading with the polls and, um, and the balls to try to help Ukraine uh, win. I mean, you're, you're going to condemn these other countries, and we're either, we're either going to have to then Article 5 will be invoked and we're going to make good on that, or I guess we could abandon NATO. And then what would that entail for the United States? You know, people forget that the European Union is still our number one trading um, market. So you can quickly just look and see if you just want to look at pure economic terms, how bad that would be. But then you just think of just um, all of the other ways that, that allies actually have the ability to make the United States more secure and stronger and all of that, of course, would just continue to diminish um, as they as they defend themselves against this this country that, um, you know, we could deter that from happening or stop that from happening um, if the United States was there playing a leading role and, and it's in our interest. The other thing I would say, too, on the China front, too, you know, you know, we're going to need our European allies to continue to behave in ways that help us with the China problem. I mean, we've got two major countries that are determined right now to unseat the United States as the world's still relative preeminent power. Um, both, you know, Russia and China, Xi Jinping and Vladimir Putin are getting closer, not moving further away relationally. And, and you know, I repeatedly hear from allies, not just in, in European capitals, but in Asian capitals as well. I mean, Japan is, like, making this argument, too. You can't – I mean, these aren't sentimental folks who are, you know, belong in some sort of idealist camp in international relations. They, they're hard-headed realists, and, you know, and, they, and they're, they're really worried because there's just – the European countries can, can help the United States in ways from, you know, you think about um, – Yes, of course, sanctions, but but also just with when we try to encourage countries to to close off, you know, Chinese five G networks, et cetera, that we rely on and use when we're deployed um, abroad. So you can think of all the different ways that we want our allies to help us um, weaken and and contain or deter or confront the Chinese Communist Party. You, you can't you can't condemn them to the threat of the Russian Federation and expect them to help us. I mean, they, they simply won't. It's not even expected. They actually won't be able to. Their hands are going to be tied, and they're going to be just surviving. Um, and so, anyway, this is a very long answer to just say it's not in our interest to see Russia uh, gobble up Europe and chip it away and destroy the NATO alliance. It's also not in our interest to have a weak NATO alliance, and that's why I was a big defender of the Trump administration's efforts to encourage our NATO allies to beef up their own security. Strong allies are better than weak allies. Um, and it's also why I think, listen, if you remember Secretary Mattis kind of controversially went to, to NATO and said, you all have to care more about your children than, than Americans care about them and urge them to, to, to contribute more to their own security and survival and, and to fight. And, and Ukraine, obviously not a member of NATO, but they're doing exactly what we've demanded that allies do. And so then to turn back and say, okay, good for you, and then not support them, I think would also create a disincentive for all these other countries um, to do what we've been telling them to. Otherwise, they're going to look around and they're going to say, listen, if the United States isn't a good bet, maybe I should hedge, like what Hungary's done. Maybe I should hedge under the Russian, you know, kind of shadow. Or maybe I should hedge with the Chinese if they're the ones that are going to be the stronger power. Maybe that's the safer bet for my country. That's not what we want. We, we want to have countries that are more in our camp than, than theirs. And so for, for many different reasons, you know, it's in U.S. interest to not have a major war in Europe. It's in U.S. interest to stop Russian aggression in Ukraine um, before it has the ability to spread out and tip off um, at the edges of the NATO alliance. You, 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 you're, you said uh, we're letting Germany decide the fate of Europe, potentially. Um, it's a really interesting concept since we think we've got involved in two wars to stop Germany from deciding the fate of Europe. But uh, I'm sitting here looking at, at 
the past. Uh, I think uh, David Larder pointed out that the Russian invasion of Ukraine happened in 2014. And do you think they were that Putin was emboldened by the total lack of response to the to the taking of Crimea and and the uh, support for the the Donbassian uh, rebel forces against the government of Ukraine? Do you think that played a part in his decision to go ahead and, and think he could, three days could wrap up the rest of Ukraine? Uh, I absolutely do, and 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 just to um, something that I've come around to. I didn't used to think this, but I think I've become persuaded by this argument that it was the Bush administration's failure to respond strongly enough in 2008 with the invasion of Georgia as well. Um, so you could go, you know, you could go, uh, you could go all the way back there too. I mean, you know, it, it's, it's, I think I have my dates right, right? 2000, that were that 2007, uh, I think. You can, someone can fact check me, I'm sure here. Um, but, but I, I mean, I, I remember at the time, um, being pretty defensive of the U S government's, uh, lack of response to, to Russia and its, um, invasion of, of Georgia at the time. And I kind of look back now, I'm like, gosh, we, you know, I mean, I think the, the Putin has been, um, making judgments again, this kind of, kind of goes back to why it's just, I think the, the, um, the, the schools of thought within realism, that are more structural are, are not as realist as the ones who take into account the the personalities, the idiosyncratic um, risk assessments and, and, and even passions and ideological sense of, I mean, I don't like the word nationalism because nobody means the same thing anymore when they say nationalism, but strong sense of, of national claims um, that the Russians have had for many years, specifically Putin and Putinism. Um, really believing that they got the raw end of the deal at the end of the Cold War. And and all this is just, I mean, it's, 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 it's real. And, and so, and that's, it's a very highly motivated, you know, motivator to, to these, to these acts of aggression, thinking they can get away with, um, with, with using military force to just take territory and people. And so I think that those were, I also think, I also, you know, I think that the Obama administration's Russia reset, um, was was totally totally uh maybe well intentioned but but continually shown to to not be working this this trying to find this is another reason i people say well look we you know the united states and nato really forced putin to invade ukraine here in 2022 if we had only treated them given them an opportunity to be a partner and an ally in some respects, rather than constantly taking an adversarial approach to them. I'm like, are you crazy? Did you not live through Russia reset? I mean, the Obama administration really gave the old college try um, in, in every way. And, and they were, you know, rebuffed every time. The Russians continued to, to push and see what they could get away with, with the, whether it's cyber attacks, whether it's, you know, violations of the chemical weapons bans, we're using nerve agents on, on um, UK territory for assassination attempts. Um, I mean, even this one thing that's really upset me was when the right before the invasion, the Russians uh, launched that anti-satellite uh, weapon that took out a satellite right after we got our astronauts to the International Space Station. That was like right before Russia invaded Ukraine in, in February, this, this last round. And I'm like, these guys. And, and then there this cyber attack. And the United States really, the Biden administration tried to like reason with them and try to find some sort of something they can do, continue, continue to do that all the way. I mean, withheld aid that had been approved by Congress to Ukraine because they believed that that would be maybe the thing that would provoke Russia to finally make good on their threat and invade Ukraine. And it was just constantly bending over backwards to come up with this, you know, diplomatic solution to, to Russia. None of it, of course, appeased Putin. Um, in fact, so from my perspective, every time we tried these other ways to define peaceful diplomatic solutions and try to take a more conciliatory approach to Putin, that's when the Russians actually invaded. Um, and when, when the Russians were threatened with force, when they believed that there was somebody in the White House who might um, use military force or, or, or sanctions, uh, they, they were less hesitant to act aggressively. Um, and you can see that during the Trump administration. I know that's not a um, consensus view across the spectrum, but from my perspective, you know, Donald Trump was this kind of good guy who was willing to, you know, beat his chest and make threats that 
not only did Americans, you know, weren't sure that he would or he wouldn't, they thought he really would in a lot of these cases, whether it was North Korea or whoever the, the authoritarian leader was, um, but Russia too, you know, I mean, it was, it was the Trump administration that took out those, uh, you know, 100 plus Russian mercenaries in Syria and, you know, didn't blink about, didn't blink um, about it, and et cetera. So I think that there was just kind of a, a a fear or an uncertainty, um, you know, Russia collusion accusations aside, um, that that prevented Putin from thinking that was the time to actually invade Ukraine. Um, but but unfortunately, the Biden administration came in and, and tried to have this Russia reset part two from the Obama years, and and it led to Russia's invasion. It's almost as if it was a, a bringing together of, of two threads. One that we you know, we talked, and you, you reviewed a lot of it um, just in the last few minutes, where, you know, you had the Russian reset. You also had um, Bush 43s. I, I looked into Putin's heart. You know, that whole, um, that hope and that desire, you could call it idealistic view of always giving Russia the benefit of the doubt that they're going to do the right thing. And it, it folds into something uh, for almost a decade uh, Plus, here um, it's not more than a decade, maybe a dozen years. Once a year, uh, on average, we have uh, Dr. Dmitry Gorenberg from uh, CNA on to talk about Russia. Back when they had a Russia shop of one, him now they're a little bit larger. But one thing we always tried to get our head around is the fact that we're always trying to look and to understand Russia in a Western context and. Uh, there's a big mistake and a lot of potential peril there because the Russians don't think like Westerners. Westerners have enough diversity of thought on their own, but they have different motivations, different histories. They're not quite Eastern. They're just, they're just plain Russia. And when you look at our European allies and how they respond, and you know, we, we touched on a bit about the, the, the Balts and the former Warsaw Pact, uh, nations that are NATO, they've been pretty clear with a couple of outliers um, on their response to the Russian aggression. But in Western Europe, and specifically led by Germany, there is a a deep set, um, if not pro-Russia, refusal to be anti-Russia uh, factions. And part of the probably the most charitable version of that is an all, the almost mercantilist Ost politics of Germany where they just want to do business with um, with Russia and, and not worry about the rest of it. But Europe has centuries of dealing with Russia that you thought would flavor their, um, their realist view. So if you have that dismissive left end of the spectrum in Western Europe um, towards Russia – that in many ways encourage their activity. What have you seen that might be um, prompting or give some encouragement for those that are looking for additional spine or growth of what uh, we might define in the course of our conversation today as the European realist view of Russia that might even transcend whichever direction this Russia-Ukrainian war finally works its way out to be? Yeah, I mean, from the German, from the, when I think about the Germans, I'm like, you know, these guys, they think that, you know, a true, re- real Russia reset hadn't been tried yet. You know, like we just, they always think if we could just give it just one more shot, there's just this belief that 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 Russia would not um, be adversarial to to Germany or to, to, to other allies' um, interests. You know, I mean, I, I think at some point we – yeah, I don't know. I'm, I'm not. I'm not a uh, country expert on on Germany, um, so I'm want to kind of know my own limits here. But I I do think that at some point, I'm not so sure it's that. I don't know. I'm not so sure that I would necessarily call how how Germany. Well, I do. I do think that a lot of their their assumptions are very rosy. I also think that Germany might just have very different assessments about what what really is in their interest, and and if that's true. You know, I'm, I'm, I'm more um, open to this idea, I've argued since the beginning of the war, you know, rather than just waiting constantly to get Germany on board with what the NATO alliance wants to do or provide to Ukraine, 
There is nothing preventing the United States of America from just saying we are going to support the position of the Poles and the Brits and the Balts. But really, the Poles and the Brits are the one pushing this, which is give Ukraine, you know, all, you know, the Russians claim there are red lines left, right, and upside down for, you know, everything that they would consider just a, their red line. They draw these lines everywhere. And, you know, it's like, no, you know, what our, our perspective is we're going, Ukraine's the one fighting for themselves, and we're going to enable and empower them to do that and not restrict them in any way. Um, that, 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 when I, well, let me put it this way. I don't think that we should give, you know, the, where, where realism, I think most realists would agree, is you, you don't want to totally give these, these countries, you know, total, um, you have to be con- conscious that sometimes countries can uh, potentially, you know, they don't they'll drag you into a war that you don't really want to go into. I mean, that's a, a, a very real concern as well. And so you don't want to let, you know, my, I mean, if Zelensky decides he's going to invade Moscow, obviously we would not be very keen on that um, with our weapons. But, but I'm, I'm talking about a, a proportional responses for, for Zelensky to be able to take out, you know, the, the means of, um, of the war efforts. They're on the other side of the Ukrainian-Russian border. You know, we, we prevented Zelensky from being able to do that. You know, I just think that's ridiculous. That's just going to protract the war and not enable Ukraine to win. You know, that, that, that we should enable him to do that. And that's the position of the Bolts and the Poles. And so I think it's some, and, and the Brits, I think at some point you can just say, you know, stop trying to do this sort of middle, keep everybody together. You can forge ahead and then let Germany decide what it wants to do. If Germany's going to sit back on the sidelines and let the Brits and the Poles and the Balts and the United States and then the United States, you know, help restock and replenish stocks of the weapons that our other allies are sending to Ukraine and just kind of move forward. And then the center of gravity essentially not entirely shifts away from the West, but it does shift over um, quite a bit over to the East in terms of where where we're throwing our support and, and, and our efforts. That might be the modern adaptation to what the NATO alliance looks like if Germany simply just won't won't come along. I'm very encouraged. I've been very encouraged. I was encouraged by Brexit. I'm encouraged by um, countries, uh, you know, in the West, sort of broadly speaking, you know, of those who have embraced self-determination, national sovereignty, pluralism, toleration, you know, those sorts of things very broadly. Um, I get very encouraged when I see life in them. Um, so, you know, that they, they want to preserve um, themselves and their people and their cultures, you know, where, where the, 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 the idealists would say, oh, no, that's bad. You know, uh, religion and sectarian differences and, you know, pride in your own country will prevent us from having world government, benevolent world, world government, where we can arbitrate differences at the U.N. rather than through war. You know, where I say, no, 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 we're never the U.N. is totally worthless. Um, you know, just like the League of Nations was totally worthless. You know, you, you, countries are going to act in their own interests according to what they believe is is just and right. And and so, um, so, so I, I so I think that you know I, I've been very encouraged by a lot of what I've seen out of many of our NATO allies, and um, and I, I know, you know, the Brits. We can talk if we shift over to talking about AUKUS. I mean, you've got a lot of you've got countries now that are realizing that really since the Cold War, we've all, I mean, both Republicans and Democrats and across the Atlantic, folks have just kind of thought we were sort of in this now, if not permanent peace, maybe semi-permanent peace, where, you know, liberal democracy is the, you know, culminating end. Um, uh, we're kind of moving in that direction. We're all going to trade and everyone was going to get, want to get rich and that's going to motivate people to just not go to war with each other. And And that idea is obviously was never true. Um, and I think countries are, are un, unfortunately, I think, aw- coming alive to this idea way too late. I mean, the Bush administration did this too. This was sort of the, you know, spreading democracy thing, continuing to push this envelope saying that if, if, if the whole world sort of becomes liberal democracy, then, then you're not going to have these, you're not going to have violent world war again. Um, and, and those are not the arguments that, that the that Republican leadership is making now. I mean, they're, they're, people are making, no kidding, you know, how do we defend American sovereignty, the American way of life? And we are, up, we are in trouble because we have not been investing in the kinds of weapons and technology our military needs to hold off a major peer. And now we've got one major peer, China, 
and its closest partner is the Russian Federation, which, by the way, even though their conventional military is getting wrecked by the Ukrainians, they've got all kinds of strategic systems that they haven't employed in this war yet. And they're still a formidable enemy of the United States. And then we have North Korea and Iran, rogue nations that, that, those, that both Russia and China exploit to their advantage. So we are, the United States is going to need some allies, and we're all going to need to invest in our you know, military industrial capacity to produce the necessary weapons we need at scale. And, and, and that's on all of us. You know, Bob Gates has been, uh, you know, talking about this in his books as well, too. I know people always say, oh, well, well he was Secretary of Defense. Why didn't he do something about it when he had power? But, um, but you know, this is kind of his point is that, you know, there were things that we could have done. We could have understood that you know, American preeminence was not, is not something that we're just entitled to. You have to fight for it. You have to invest in it, and you and you have to maintain that relative superiority over our adversaries who would love to unseat us. And that's where we are today. And, and so, you know, from my perspective, it's our it's our interest to have a much stronger NATO alliance. If Germany's not going to, you know, come willingly, they might have to come kicking and screaming. Or if they're going to sit this one out, I mean, it's not going to be good for Germany. Um, it'd be, I think it'd be a disaster for. For, for Germany, actually. But, um, but my, my point, though, is you might just have to kind of forge ahead and, and then hope that Germany comes along once we've already thrown our weight behind um, those countries willing to, to defend Europe. Well, we, we have a pretty good question from one of our uh, people in the chat room, which has to do with the fact that American foreign policy, probably since Wilson, has been in the liberal international relations school of thought. Uh, first, are there realist foreign relations officers in, in, in our government? And if, if so, do they have any impact? And w- I, would you characterize what both Russia and China and uh, 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 are doing? Is that Are they really in the realist international relations theory uh, themselves? They're, they're looking out for their own interests and, and all that. Yeah, I mean, I... I... I think I think that they're realists. I mean, I think that I think that they are they are understanding that. I mean, obviously they subscribe to a um, a, a very different set of of mores and beliefs about what is just. You know, the United States's vision of of what what the world you know should look like ideally um, has been, or I would say, kind of the best on it or how I would view it is that the United States um, really leads the post-World War II um, architectures of, of alliances. And, and our imprint of how we view what is just and right is reflected in, in other Western democratic nations. Um, and, 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 you know, we believe it's, it's good for everybody. You know, you don't, you, don't, you don't invade other people's countries. And I would recommend that a a smart administration, uh, you know, coming in maybe after the Biden administration would take a lighter touch to to talk, to kind of um, needling other democratic countries' domestic affairs. I think that's been a that's definitely a, like a very Wilsonian thing that that especially the Biden administration is, does way too much, um, and and other liberal uh, countries have done. I mean, even the Bush administration did it too. So it's not just a Democrat thing, but I think taking a much lighter touch to, to, to especially because American domestic politics is so contentious right now. We have so many factions that we're, we're really having the argument domestically about what it, what we mean by what is truly an American value. Um, so I would strongly argue, and I have argued, um, that that you know the Democrat Democratic administrations shouldn't take very liberal Democratic values and then call them American values and then try to impose them on our democratic allies right now, which is um, something they've done with very, you know, controversial social policy. Um, so, so in that regard, you know, I would say, and I would say, you know, Ronald Reagan, I mean, he was a realist. Um, Bush 41, I think was a realist um, in, in a sense of really trying to understand, no kidding, kind of what are our limitations, what's feasible, what's in U.S. interests aligned with U.S. principles. And, um, and, and, and so I would say they were, I would say there was components of, you know, it's not ever pure. Once you get into power, you kind of do the best you can. Um, but Bush 43 kind of was a mixed bag here and there. 
he understood the need to use military power, military force, but but really had, I think, very rosy and unrealistic expectations for imposing liberal values on countries without the the practice or the desire to actually assume them themselves and to be self-governing. Um, and, and, you know, so one big telltale sign that you're talking about a country that's liberal or a liberal internationalist, you know, obviously, is they're looking for sort of a final outcome where disputes would be solved through arbitration. And, you know, I think we're, we're kind of having a big snap to, to, to answer the question here kind of asked back to the realism. I, I actually don't see anybody on the American right right now. Good, that's not true. There might be some still kind of making that like, for the sake of democracy, sort of generally looking for this, you know, kind of global democratic, you know, we're all, democ- you know, democracies and then you don't have time for war. I mean, I, may, I don't even know who that would be, honestly, actually. So I don't even know because they're trying to even think, I mean, there's definitely people who are more hawkish. They want to use force more, but that doesn't mean they're not realists. I mean, I, John Bolton's not a neoconservative. I mean, he's, he's just a very, um, you know, he's very hawkish, offensive, in, you know, um, uh, interventionist. Uh, but, but I, I see, again, if you look at just the leaders of the of the national security committees right now, and go back and listen to their floors after the midterm elections. They kind of came out and gave speeches. All of the the senior Republicans on the on the um, national security committees, and all of their arguments about support for Ukraine were tied were tied to U.S. interest, major power competition with China and Russia that they're collaborating. Um, with an eye towards what is good for Americans, peace, freedom, and prosperity. And, and so I think, I think, you know, I could be wrong. You may have to ask me, you know, three years from now. But um, I think we're sort of in the midst of this really, no kidding, realization. And, and, and great power competition has, has its effect on people um, to understand that, no, we – I mean, even now with this balloon thing, this, this, this Chinese spy balloon, people are still like, why would China do this? You know, I mean, there's still some holdovers from just like, are you kidding me? Um, you know, but I think that I think we are in the beginning of, a, of an awakening to realize that the American homeland is, is not um, a sanctuary, that war could no kidding spill over to the American homeland. I mean, Americans have really felt safe. Um, for a long time, and I think they're realizing, no, no, we're not, and 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 so we, we're going to have to use American military power, um, our economy, uh, for for coercive purposes, and always handing, you know, holding a hand out for diplomacy. But diplomacy um, has always worked best. You saw it during the Cold War, Ronald Reagan. Diplomacy has always worked best under the very serious threat of pain. And I think that's where we've snapped at now. I think that it's mostly comprised, and even the Democrat and the Democratic Party, with the exception of that 65 wing, you know, person wing and the progressives, um, and, the, and the Democratic base in the House of Representatives, you're seeing a lot more Democrats um, understanding that, oh, my goodness. Um, I mean, we're going to have to modernize the nuclear triad. We might need more nuclear, you know, capable delivery systems. We, we need to have a, a, a nuclear, um, you know, plutonium production capability that we haven't had for years and years and years. I mean, you know, this is bipartisan consensus now. And so really I think it's, it's the rise of China and understanding how threatening they are that is really kind of forcing people to, to understand that the days of liberal internationalism, uh, are just, just, that's just not the era that at best we're back to conservative internationalism. And which I think is is very distinctly principled realism. And that right there is a great um, way to tie up a bow on a great hour because that that gives us the, uh, the the what next, what people should be thinking about, what a lot of people are. Um, Rebecca, what a what a great hour! Um, really enjoyed uh, the opportunity to to sit here and chat with you. Uh, for the for the listeners, if they wanted to to track on what you're working on. Uh, where's a good place for them to keep track of you? And are there are some projects that you have in the uh, in the fire right now that we should look forward to in the next few weeks or months. Sure. Yeah. You can you can tell me where I was wrong and where you disagree or push back if you think <laughs> I was being unfair. I you know I, I will say too I I don't mean to say that 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 everybody needs to agree with me specifically in every degree to be a realist you know in Ukraine I do I do think there are plenty of realists who make who make really good arguments about kind of what next and how we do things um, in in very practical ways but but just to say that you know those who are restrainers do not have the monopoly on realism um 
And you can follow me on Twitter at RL Heinrichs, um, or you can find my webpage at Hudson Institute. All my work is there. And um, yeah, I, I'm going to continue working on this, um, this, this idea, this connection with realism and the just war tradition. And I hope to, within the next six months or so, publish a pretty big um, a small booklet um, on, on the just war tradition and why I believe it is compatible with and reinforcing to the way the United States thinks about um, nuclear deterrence. So that would be my, that's my big project that I've been plowing away on for, for, for some time now. Well, that sounds great. And uh, we're going to have to keep in touch because that might be an excuse to come spend some more time together talking. So uh, we're looking forward to seeing that and really appreciate again, the, the opportunity uh, to talk with you this afternoon. Thanks for having me on. It's been wonderful. Thank you very much. And thank you, everybody, for joining us for another edition of MidRats. And until next time, I hope you have a great Navy day. Cheers. Maloney wants to marry me and so Leave the strand and Piccadilly Or you'll be to blame For love has fairly drove me silly Hoping you're the same It's a long way to Tipperary It's a long way to Rome It's a long way to Tipperary Goodbye, Piccadilly, farewell, Lady.